0: How's everybody doing today? Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Matt. I'm one of the, part of the teaching team here at Vintage, and I'm very excited to continue our Easter People Series this week. I'm honored that Pastor would allow me to bring today's message, and despite the fact that I, I don't have as cool a tennis shoes as he would have up here, uh, we might still have some fun today if you're okay with that. I do want to take a moment and honor our senior pastor and his wife, Kyla. I just want to say how thankful that we are for their friendship, for their leadership. And I'm thankful for the burden that God has given them and placed on them and the vision that he has put in their hearts for the local church and the impact that it has here in Central Texas. So will you help me honor Pastor Stephen and Kyla, just a round of applause for them. Pastor Steven is at our Liberty Hill location today and we know that, uh, that that location is doing some awesome things and it's gonna be a great Sunday for him. I, I wanna reiterate something that Lindsay talked about. We've got five services next week at Easter. You will be surprised at the number of people who will say yes to a personal invitation to Easter Sunday service. And there's plenty of opportunities for folks to come and hear the good news. Stop by Easter Central on your way out today. Grab some door hangers, some invite cards, some flyers. We've made it very easy for you. And I'd ask that this week pray about who God would have you invite to Easter service next week. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend, maybe a family member, maybe there's a neighbor, but invite somebody and God's gonna put that name on your heart this week. And you'll be surprised. It's like pushing on an open door to invite someone to Easter. They'll say yes. Now, don't come alone next week. Bring somebody with you, and I'd ask you a couple of things. We're gonna have a packed house for most of all of these services. So come early, or maybe come to the later one to free up some seats for our guests, and it'll give you the opportunity to serve in one of the middle services next Sunday. I can't believe that Easter is already here. It feels like February was yesterday. Well, uh, we're gonna dive into today's message. You know, the Easter story you heard in the video leading up, it, it is the ultimate story of good triumphing over evil. It was a demonstration of God's love for all of humankind. And it was the undeniable proof that Jesus defeated all the powers of hell, sin and death itself. And our key passage is found in Matthew 28, one through six. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven We know as Christians that that moment was the moment of our salvation, and it was the beginning of our resurrection story as well. Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at John the Baptist. Last week, we studied James, the half-brother of Jesus and the author of the book of James. And today, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul, perhaps the most transformed of all of the Easter people that we have studied so far, So let me give you some information about Paul just so you can sort of place him in the storyline of Scripture, okay? So the Apostle Paul, you'll hear him called Saul. You'll hear him called Saul of Tarsus. You'll hear him called Saint Paul. It's all the same person, but he was, scholars place him anywhere from two to six years younger than Jesus. He was a Roman citizen born of a Jewish family. His name was Saul but replaced with Paul after a moment that he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we're going to talk about that later. At some point in Paul's life, he studied under a famous teacher of that day, Gamaliel. The book of Acts describes Paul as a skilled tent maker. He was a persecutor of the early Jesus movement, first century Christians. And Paul is named among those who approved of, may have even been present for the stoning of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. But we'll see that Paul was the author of nearly half of the New Testament, 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament Paul wrote. The story of Paul is a wild one because he went from such a hater of Jesus and those who loved and followed Jesus to the most impactful and influential Christian that the world has seen to date. And I think if Paul were with us today, he would share a few lessons. And so today we're gonna take a look at some of those. If you've got your notes, pull them out. You're smarter with a pen. That is empirically proven. So I think the first thing we'll hear from Paul is that everyone has a past that they're ashamed of. Has anybody come across a recent yearbook photo lately? I know some of you, when you move and you dig through some of those boxes that you never unpacked anyways, you find some of those old glamour shots from the mall when you were kids. The laughter is telling. Those are, oh yeah, I saw that one. An old driver's license photo, right? How many of you got some awkward family photos from your past, you wish you could just burn those? Thank goodness that, you know, that back in the day, a digital footprint wasn't a thing. You can actually burn those photos. There's no proof of it, right? So I, there, there is, there is a past that we're all ashamed of, and maybe some of it's a bit comical, and maybe you have a real past that you're ashamed of. There's some real dark stuff, some very trying stuff in your past. Let's read a little bit about what Paul has to say about his past. Acts 22, 1 through 5. Brothers, and esteemed fathers, listen to me as I offer my defense. When he, when they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, "I am a Jew." Born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in the Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. If anybody had a past to be shamed of, it was Paul. Paul. The man had dedicated his entire adult life to hunting down, killing, or if he didn't kill them, putting them in chains and dragging them back for what would be a horrific trial and an eventual death. Paul had a past to be ashamed of. But instead of trying to hide his past, I want you to see what he did in, that, in the verse of scripture that we just read, Paul calls it out because he recognized that his past was a point of reference to demonstrate just how far an encounter with God can bring a person. It was part of Paul's story, not the thing that he worked hard to hide. And friends, it was worth hiding, but it was a point of reference. Everyone has a past that they're to be ashamed of, but but that past is part of your story. It becomes part of your testimony. I think if Paul were with us today, the second thing that he would tell us is that you must surrender to Jesus. You must surrender to Jesus. You know, sometimes in life, we try to do a lot on our own, but there is only one person, there's only one experience that will truly change your life. It's lasting change, and that's an encounter with a resurrected Christ. I think if Paul were here, we read it in scripture. He would tell us, look, I was trying to do it my own way. I was educated. I was living tradition. And then I met Jesus. And he had an encounter on the road to Damascus. Let's read about the moment that Paul's life was surrendered to Jesus. Acts 22, verses six through 10. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light suddenly shone around me I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. You see, when we have an encounter with a resurrected Jesus, as Paul did that day on the road to Damascus, everything changes. And I think in scripture, I think that the main things are the plain things. So there's some very plain things in this story that I want to highlight about what happens when we surrender to Jesus. Number one, Jesus changes our direction, He changes our direction. Now, sometimes Jesus will change our literal direction. So think about the story of Jonah. He was running the opposite direction geographically from where God had told him to go in Nineveh. He was headed a different way. He had an encounter with God in the belly of a whale and God literally changed his direction. He put him back in the direction that he told him to go in the first place. There are times where God will change your literal direction. There are times in the case of Paul where he'll change your figurative direction. Paul was headed to Damascus with an agenda. He was headed there to hunt down Christians, kill them, put them in chains if he couldn't kill them, and drag them back for trial. And Jesus changed his direction, figuratively speaking, because the scripture says, Paul was told to get up, go ahead and go into Damascus, but with a different agenda. God will change your direction when you surrender to him. The second thing, when we surrender to Jesus, is that he changes our perspective. He'll change our perspective. You know, it's interesting, there's been a lot of psychological studies of young children. Up until about the age of six, you can show a child a 3D model, let's, uh, let's say a volcano. And on one side of a volcano, as they're sitting at the table, it'll be maybe a, a desert setting in this model. And and the researcher will ask the child, what do you see? And the child will name, I see sand and I see a camel and I see a palm tree. Okay. Then they will turn that 3D model around, and on the other side of this volcano or the mountain, there'll be a rainforest setting, and they'll ask the child, what do you see now? And the child will say, I see trees, and I see a you know a, a, a jaguar living in this rainforest, and I see a river, and okay, good. Now the researcher will ask the child, same child, same model what do you think is on the other side of that mountain? And the child will not be able to answer because they don't understand the idea of perspective. What I can see is all I can see. And even though they've previously identified a desert, they won't be able to describe what's on the other side. After a certain age, when you ask the kid, now they have perspective and they can say, "Oh yeah, on the other side is a desert, I just saw that. It's a matter of perspective. Friends, when you surrender your life to Jesus, God will help you see the other side of the mountain. You'll have some perspective that you didn't have before. Think about Paul, he had spent his entire life, he was educated in the Jewish tradition, but he didn't have the perspective that God gave him when he said, all the things you think you're doing, chasing tradition, doing what you think is right, you're persecuting me. And in a moment, Paul's perspective was changed. The next thing that happens when we have an encounter and we surrender our life to Jesus is that Jesus changes our heart. He changes our heart. What Paul had that day was more than just an elaborate behavior modification moment. Jesus changed him from the inside out. God changed his heart on that road. You'll see in John 14, 6, this is Jesus talking. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The only person that can change our heart from the inside out and a behavior is a manifestation of the changed insides, that's Jesus. He's the only way. Paul had a moment where he surrendered his life to God on that road. I think the next thing that Paul would tell us if you he were here everyone's got a past that they can be ashamed of but it's actually part of your story not something to hide it's a point of reference for just how far God can bring you I think Paul would tell us you've got to surrender to Jesus and he'll do a few things he'll change your direction he'll give you perspective and he'll change your heart I think the next thing that Paul would tell us is that you must be humble you must be humble I recently finished a book called Legacy. It talks about the New Zealand national rugby team, the All Blacks. Anyone ever heard of the All Blacks? Yeah. The All Blacks has a, over, the entire, over their entire existence, a 77% winning percentage. There are some that would argue that the All Blacks, they're the most successful sports program. They're certainly in rugby, hands down. But they're the most successful sports program of any sport, period, full stop. There are some that would argue that. But there is no denying that the All Blacks are an incredible sports team. They're at the top of their game. They are an elite performing group of athletes. They were like ranked number one for like 10 years straight. And the lowest they've ever been ranked since the early 1900s is three. That's pretty good. In this book, it talks about the All Blacks after one of their tests that's that's a rugby match so we're going to speak a little rugby language here when they leave the pitch that's a field for rugby okay if you've ever seen a rugby match they're not clean it's full contact muddy and, and it's uh, i mean it's wild to watch but so these mountains of men right with legs the size of tree trunks they've just crushed their chief opponent and it's time for celebration So they all file into the locker room. There's media there. There's friends and family and some of their biggest fans are in there and it's a party. There is much to be celebrated. The All Blacks have won again and they've crushed their opponent. And after a few moments of celebration, the team manager will escort everyone who is not a player out of the locker room. And it's just the players that remain. And in complete silence, these men will get up They'll grab a broom and they'll begin to sweep their locker room. And as the author asked the coach, why do you do this? You're an elite program. You could have, you you could hire dozens of people to come and clean this up for you. Why why have the players do that? These, These are elite athletes at the top of their game, ranked number one year over year. And the coach begins to describe, he says, you've got to be grounded to be great. And we know that humility is one of many ingredients in what maintains greatness on the field. And so in some small way, the players sweeping this locker room because no one cleans up after the All Blacks except the All Blacks. And he says, this is is one of many things we do to reestablish, to remind the players humility. Think about Paul he was literally knocked off of his high horse on the road to Damascus. Here's a man highly educated at the top of his game, revered and feared in many respects, and God knocks him literally off of his horse onto the ground. And that must have been quite the experience to live his entire life doing what he was convinced was right, only to be told by a voice from heaven that you're completely wrong. You're persecuting me. What a humbling experience that must have been. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, he's writing to the church in Corinth, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. In a separate letter to Timothy, Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying. And everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners and I am the worst of them all. In some translations, Paul actually says, I'm the chief sinner. Hey, by the way, on that moment, that road to Damascus moment when Paul was knocked off of his horse, he was spoken to by a voice from heaven saying, you're persecuting me. Everything you've known to date is actually wrong. By the way, Paul was blinded and he had to blind finish his route into Damascus and rely on someone to take care of him for a few days until God returned his sight. Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, hunt them down, kill them if possible, put them in chains if he couldn't, drag them back. He had a moment where it was a life-changing moment. God blinded him, which is a humbling experience. And God said, you're gonna have to rely on somebody. And it was a Christian man who took Paul in for a few days until God returned to sight. Interesting how humbling that might have been. Couldn't see. And the one person he had to rely on was probably one of the people he was headed to hunt. What a humbling experience. I think Paul would tell us you gotta be humble. The next thing that Paul I think would tell us is the church is about people. Church is about people. Does anyone recognize the name Eddie Collins? Eddie Collins. I, I see a lot of no's. I wouldn't expect you to know Eddie Collins. He played for a baseball team called the White Sox. Any White Sox fans in here? In the early 1900s. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about baseball. I know last week was opening day for many of your favorite teams. I, I hope they did well. Uh, if they didn't, there's like 400 baseball games in a season, so... <laughs> I'm sure they'll turn it around somewhere. (laughs) There's a play in baseball. You don't see it very often nowadays, but it was quite important. Uh, You'll still see it from time to time, but but it's very rare. But certainly when Eddie Collins played for the White Sox, Eddie Collins holds the record for the most of this play that I'm about to talk about. It's called the sacrifice bunt. So let's talk about the sacrifice bunt. The sacrifice bunt is a play in baseball when there's a runner on base. You'd like to get that runner to a scoring position and to do it, the batter will perform a sacrifice bunt. It's a play where the batter will square up to the pitcher, barely tap the ball, just enough to keep it in play, but enough to move the infielders out of their normal position. Now they call it a sacrifice bunt because unless the batter is wicked fast, he will be thrown out, okay? So the sacrifice bunt, batter squares up, barely touches the ball, goes into play, infielder has to come out of position to throw the runner out at first because that's the only play that they can make out of that bunt. But friends, here's what I want you to know. The sacrifice bunt has nothing to do with the batter. It has everything to do with advancing the runner to a scoring position. That's what that play's about. Now, Major League Baseball players, they can switch... They can swing for the fences. They're paid to hit home runs. But a sacrifice bunt has nothing to do with this person who could take a three-inch diameter bat and somehow in a matter of seconds make a decision and hit a baseball slightly larger than the diameter of the bat, 420 feet into the outfield for a home run. They can do that in a moment. But a sacrifice bunt has nothing to do with what they can do It has everything to do with advancing that runner to a scoring position. It's interesting to me, this sacrifice bunt, because I wonder, and Paul, I think, would tell us this, what if we took that perspective on life and the people that we encounter as part of our spiritual family? Friends, sometimes it has nothing to do with me and you. It has everything to do with advancing somebody to scoring position. Paul would say that not only was I trying to do it myself because he could, Paul was a highly educated, very competent, and talented man. But when he had an encounter with Jesus, it changed everything. And over the course of his ministry, God had to continually remind Paul, it's not about you. By the way, Paul didn't change the world for God. Paul invested in people like Titus and Philemon and Timothy He invested in those people, changed the world for God. Jesus had 12 disciples, 11 of which were the ones that changed the world. Friends, the church is about people. And I think Paul would tell us, hey, we always need to be coachable because in this journey with Christ, there will always be people that God puts in our pathway to sharpen us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to build us up to remind us to stay grounded so we can continue to be great for God. There's gonna be people in our pathway. And friends, you will be that person in someone else's pathway. So I think it's important for us to remember to stay coachable. Let's look at Colossians 3.16. Let the message about Christ and all its riches fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. You see, friends, sometimes it's not about the transformation that's happening inside of us. God wants to do something in us so he can do something through us, and the thing he wants to do through us often is to impact and help be part of the transformation in somebody else, to advance the runner to a scoring position. So sometimes it's just not about us. The church is about people. I think the last thing that Paul would say about what we can learn from them is to choose to love the church anyways. The church, by the way, is is people. We used to have a pastor that'd say, good morning church, welcome to the building, right? The church is more than a place, it's a body of people. And because people are imperfect, sometimes church, people attach this negative connotation with church, but you know what? Paul would say, love the church anyways. The church is God's, by the way. It's not ours, it's his. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses seven through eight. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Jesus loved the church and he gave his life for it. We see that in Ephesians 5, 25. You know, Paul gave his life for the church too. And it wasn't because Paul's sacrifice for the church was some sort of substitutionary moment or or it would atone for anybody. It had nothing to do with that. Only Jesus' death did that for the church. But Paul loved the church anyways. And some of his darkest moments, he spent building the church and pouring into its people. You may have heard of the prison epistles. It's four letters, each written to a specific church or in the case of Philemon, written to a person. But Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, those books were written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Now, don't think of house arrest as like ankle bracelet. I get you know three square meals in my own palatial home. House arrest is very different in those days. And what was likely a very dark time for Paul, we find him pouring into the churches scattered across the known world. Even in his darkest moments, He was still caring for and looking after first century Christians, trying to overcome some first century Christian problems. And they're incredibly applicable to us today. You know, I wonder what would happen if many of us took took that perspective that despite our own circumstances, if we did what James said and consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds, what if we abandon our own circumstances and perhaps even a trying time that we're in and we said, despite this, I'm gonna consider it joy and I'm gonna continue to love the church and pour into its people. I wonder what would happen. Paul lived a life for Jesus after that moment On the road to damascus and even in some of paul's darkest moments whether under house arrest or in a dark hole in the ground that they called prison paul continued to love the church you know oftentimes we'll let anything keep us from church pandemics life challenges we're busy maybe something's going on anything will be enough to keep us away. But I, I have looked and looked in scripture and if you find it, let me know, but I haven't found it, the pause button for building God's church. I've not found it. And I think Paul would agree here that we gotta continue to love the church despite the circumstances around us, continue to pour into its people. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. We've gone through some things that I think Paul would tell us today. Everyone's got a past that you could be ashamed of, but friends, it's, it's a point of reference to demonstrate just how powerful the saving grace of God is. You've gotta to surrender to Jesus and when you do, he'll change your direction, he'll change your perspective and he'll change you from the inside out. You've gotta be humble. Remember that the church is about people? And he would tell us to love the church anyways. You know, years ago, there was a great sports psychologist who was also a very successful coach. And I won't say his name, but, but when asked, what, what makes great athletes? How can you identify a, a truly great athlete that will perform at the highest levels? And this psychologist and coach responded with some of the typical answers you would expect. I look for agility. I look for strength. I look for good vision on the court if it were a basketball player or on the field for a football. I look for all those things. We would expect those answers. And then he closes with a characteristic that we would not ordinarily pick out. It was a bit surprising. This coach says, I look for people who can endure the mundane longer than anybody else. In other words, the athletes that showed up into the weight room and did the same lifts day after day, despite the fact that they got old and they might not see results right away, there will come a day either in a training session or when the moment mattered most in a game and all of that mundane training would pay off. He says, I identify great athletes because they're able to endure the mundane when others wanna give up. They don't see progress. This is getting boring. Let's look at what Paul says in Galatians 6, 9. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. I don't know how many times you've invited that neighbor to church and they've said, no, do it one more time. I I don't know how many times that you've prayed for that family member who really needs an encounter with God and it's not happened yet, I don't, just do it one more time. Don't get tired of doing what is good because at just the right moment, you will see a harvest. Don't give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this morning and this time that we've had to spend in your word learning from the Apostle Paul. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here in the sound, within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that even now the Holy Spirit would begin to call them. God, I pray that these lessons we take with us this week, that despite us having a past that we might be tempted to be ashamed of, it's actually part of our testimony for just how far you're able to bring us once we have an encounter with you. I pray, God, that we would surrender to you, that you'd change our hearts, our direction, our perspective. God, help us to be humble. Help us to continue to love people and invest in the church. Now, friends, I'm I'm gonna ask a very simple question. You know, we talked about surrendering to Jesus. And there may be those here this morning that have not done that. My question is very simple. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, no, I, I don't know him. I've not asked him to come into my heart, but today's the day that I wanna do that. Maybe you've made that decision, but it's been a very long time and you want to return to a relationship with God. If that's you this morning, I'm just gonna ask you right now, just slip your hand halfway up and right back down. I won't embarrass you, I'm not gonna call you forward. I just wanna know who I'm praying with. If you wanna accept Jesus as your savior today, you want to surrender your life, just slip that hand up. Halfway up, right back down, I see that hand. Anyone else? A moment longer. Thank you, I see that one. In the Bible, it says in Romans ten nine that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. It's the greatest gift that we could ever receive, and it's free for the taking. And so in a moment, I'm going to, Pray a prayer. Maybe you raised your hand. Maybe you didn't. You thought I was going to embarrass you. I'm still not going to. But I'm going to ask all of us to pray this prayer together as we do what Romans 10, 9 says. Church, we believe in what they're doing. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. But this morning, I turn to you. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe you were raised from the dead so that I can have a relationship with you. Forgive me of my sins. I turn to you. Help me to live every day from this moment forward. Step in step with you. Guide me, Lord. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, church. Let's celebrate with those.